All right, it is nine o'clock, so we are going to begin because, as you can imagine, there is a lot to cover. In fact, there was so much to cover that, to no one's surprise, we've added one extra week to this class with the possibility of adding a sixth week, but that's the hard cutoff that I'm not permitted to go beyond adding, so... Um, we're, we're splitting this lesson up into two weeks, but hopefully we'll get through everything in the booklet you have. If you didn't get notes, they're in the back, um, and then next week we'll cover that added lesson of navigating doctrinal differences in the church. But let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this church and for the way you're continuing to grow and mature us in the faith. We ask that this class would be helpful along those lines as we pursue unity and doctrinal fidelity together. In Christ we pray, amen. Well, I began here with a quote by John Donne that we won't examine in full because then we'd have to take a whole Bible class to you know, think about all the ideas that he's communicating here. Um, but I want to point out the line in the middle section there, reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. And what John Donne is getting at here is the fact that we don't rationally think, we don't reason clearly. Um, our reason is captive to the sin that we experience in our lives, the sin that is part of our nature. So when it comes to knowing and loving God, we all have to recognize that we don't do it perfectly. We don't do it well. And particularly, we might fall into traps of being distracted from truly knowing and loving God by emphasizing matters of doctrine that are of little importance. So we'll get into these ideas along the way that all doctrines are not created equal and that uh, being a faithful Christian is more than having cognitively correct thoughts, but having affections and actions that are formed by the gospel. So that's where we're going this morning. Feel free to stop me along the way as we go. I, of course, would like to get through everything in this this morning, but because we've added a week, um, I can always pick up on this this next week. So what I'm doing in this week is laying a foundational way of thinking and next week, I'm going to give some examples of these things in practice. So we'll talk about how to apply these to doctrinal division in the church. So instead of just thinking about theory, we'll also put it into practice. So let's begin by thinking about disagreement without division. This guy, Francis Schaeffer, all the way back in 1984, said, Evangelicalism is divided, deeply divided, and it will not be helpful or truthful for anyone to deny this. He's just pointing out that Christians who identify as evangelical in any way, which is basically most Protestants, uh, we're divided more than we'd like to admit. And this division is seen at the level of seminaries and colleges, publishing houses, magazines, and most significantly in local churches. So find someone who calls himself a Christian, and before long you'll find there's some level of division attending their Christian identity. One of the complicating factors is that evangelicalism is not a coherent thing. It falls on a spectrum ranging from hyper-fundamentalists all the way to post-conservative evangelicals and now um, a movement to go beyond evangelicalism. So it's hard to define what it means to be an evangelical Christian. 
Uh, everyone disagrees. So I've footnoted a book called The Spectrum of Evangelicalism, and each of these guys are trying to define what they think it should be, and they all disagree with each other, but the publisher thinks they all fit into the category because they wouldn't have published any non-evangelical authors. So you can see why this gets a little bit complicated out there, but I don't want to focus so much on out there, but in here how we deal with division in our church, not how seminaries and denominations deal with division um, in, in their realms. But we need to visit a few key ideas from last week. The first is that unity is important. Jesus really cares about the unity of his people, local and globally. Uh, the apostles, Jesus, they all taught and spoke regularly about unity, and virtually every New Testament letter addresses disunity and warns against it. Um, In the footnotes there, you can hardly get through the pastoral epistles without Paul warning against division and disunity in the assembly. Jesus' church is one, united as his body, so we ought to seek to express that in our local assemblies. Sky Michael Bird says, The oneness of the church then is Christological, as Christ is the head of one body, Trinitarian, with church unity emulating the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Charismatic, that has to do with preaching, is as it is rooted in one evangelical faith, sacramental, as it shares one baptism and partakes one loaf, and visible, since unity is expressed in tangible relationships with others. The point here is that our unity, the doctrine of Christian unity, touches on virtually every other doctrine, so we should be careful to jettison unity um, because it's going to affect the way that we conceive of other, other doctrines. In fact, our unity is grounded in these. Um, so, so we can't say... Let's, let's not worry. You know, division isn't a big deal. Let's just make sure we are with people that we like and think exactly like we do, because that's not Jesus' plan for the church. Often this concern for purity and unity in the church come into conflict, and that's always going to be the case. These will always be held in tension until the Lord returns. Um, we'll talk about these things more as we get along. Disagreement, though, is inevitable. So unity is important, and disagreement is inevitable. So we have to figure out how to pursue unity with disagreement in the picture. Sometimes these disagreements happen for really good reasons. Other times they happen just because of our human finiteness. But the reality is we're, we're going to disagree with anyone that we meet in a church on one level or another. I, I agree with this guy, John Stackhouse, Jr., that the most desirable unity in a church is not characterized by cognitive agreement on the contents of the Bible, and that that kind of agreement won't automatically produce perfect fellowship and unity. So Christian unity isn't just a cognitive thing. Um, Eventually, we're going to disagree about the way we state something, so we shouldn't try to grab onto a maximal level of agreement and push everyone else out who doesn't agree with our um, cognitive assertions. We also have to consider things like right practices and affections that actually do more to contribute to our unity than precise statement and agreement on doctrinal matters. Um, You can believe all of the same things as somebody else, but if your affections and your actions are not Christian or Christ-like, it doesn't matter how much you agree with them on a particular issue. Your affections and your actions are still going to get in the way. 
In the last lesson, I tried to urge us to avoid making the error of elevating our interpretation of Scripture, um, elevating that to the same as Scripture's authority. So we shouldn't try confuse what I think the Bible is saying here with what the Bible is saying. So if someone disagrees with our interpretation, we can't also necessarily accuse them of denying the authority of Scripture. They might just be denying the authority of our interpretation of Scripture. You see what I mean here. So just because I make a statement, the Bible says this, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the Bible says. There's a lot more that goes into it. We'll look at some of that later this morning. So we come to that big question, to divide or not to divide? We have disagreements. Do we divide or not? I think this is probably the wrong way to start. I think instead we should be asking, can I unite with these people? Can I join with them, making unity central instead of division? Uh, But every Christian is faced with questions like this. Can we join a church that takes a different position on, and you fill in the doctrine? Um, Should I assume that anyone who belongs to blank denomination is not a Christian and therefore in need of evangelism? Uh, Should we leave our church over whatever the disagreement might be? Um, We all have these kinds of questions at one time or another, and hopefully this lesson will help guide you in answering some of those questions. But I also want to address a more insidious and parasitic expression of division in the church, and that's the kind of division that's never externally stated. It's the kind of division that grows up when we recognize that someone doesn't think the same way as we do, and without ever having a charitable conversation about it, we start to block them out of our invitations to dinner. We block them out of our conversations at church, and we start to treat them like they're so other than us that we can't share Christ together. So we might still walk into the same church building with them, but we definitely won't sit in the same row, and we're always going to be looking down our noses at them. That's the, that's the worst kind of disagreement that I want to deal with, because that's usually what festers beneath the surface in a local church. Um, sometimes it gets to the point of, hey, we're thinking we might need to leave this church, or you know, we need to separate over whatever issue. But more regularly, it's we have attitudes towards one another and affections that are poisoned with this kind of divisive way of thinking about what it is to be a Christian and a church member. Does this make sense? That That's more of what I hope to hit, but we'll also hopefully find help for those bigger questions. Let's start by framing the discussion with doctrine's purpose. If we're going to divide over doctrine, we better have a pretty clear idea of what doctrine's purpose is. Um, What is doctrine for? Um, Well, we can't avoid doctrine because being a Christian, reading the Bible, following Jesus, all of these things go together and they find expression in doctrine and theology. Uh, But we have to to keep diving in. What, What is our doctrine and theology for as we work out our Christian identity? First, I want to say that doctrine helps us know the triune God. For that reason, doctrine is more about listening than it is about speaking. We do need to formulate statements about God, but we need to attend to the scriptures and to the doctrine of the church to understand who God is. It helps us answer Jesus' question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, we want to answer that in an accurate and true sort of way, so we need doctrine. 
So Van Hooser says that doctrines are articulations of the implicit grammatical rules that govern the community's speaking and thinking about God. Doctrine helps us say true things about God instead of heretical things about God. Okay? So this is why um, we need to know what Christians throughout time have said in the creeds. So that way when we start talking about the Trinity, we don't make errors of saying the Trinity is like an ice cube or the Trinity is like an egg or these sorts of things because that's bad grammar for talking truly about God. We need the Christians who have gone before us to help us say right things about God. But second, I want to suggest that doctrine helps us know ourselves or at least ourselves as we ought to be. Doctrine directs our way of being in this world. So doctrine is fundamentally a matter of discipleship. Here again, I want to stress that it does not belong to the cognitive realm alone. It invades every aspect of our life, including the affective, our affections, our loves, our desires, and the behavioral, what we do. All right? Um, My main point here is if you think doctrine is primarily a matter of right thinking, I want to suggest that you need to broaden your category of understanding of doctrine to include your affections and your behavior. This is what Jesus gets at when he confronts ancient Israel with doctrinal diversity and division. He says, foundational to your teaching is love for God and love for neighbor that takes shape in actions. So affections and behavior that can't be divorced from right thinking. All right, all of these things go together. Making sense? Okay, Um, this is something that I don't think I've always agreed with. I think at times I would have said, nope, doctrine is primarily about knowing the right things about God. Well, doctrine needs to go beyond that to being a godlike person, a godly person who operates in a godly way. Okay, so we use different terms for this. Orthodoxy connects to right thinking. Orthopraxy connects to right action. Orthopathy connects to right affection. So if you hear people talking about those words, uh, they're trying to argue you need to be more than just orthodox, right um, teaching, thinking, but right affections and actions as well. This is actually quite a big point, because if you pick up most books on doctrinal division in the church or in the broader world, at least what I found in my research for this class, very few people are talking about your affections and actions. They're primarily talking about your thinking. Now, when they get to matters of conscience, they disregard with right thinking and right affection and just talk about right action according to people's individual standards. But we have to bring all of three of these things together. That leads us to the, the ideas of doctrinal minimalism and doctrinal maximalism. Okay, doctrinal minimalists say doctrine's not a big deal. Um, doctrinal maximalists say doctrine is everything. In precise agreement is everything. Okay, so let's start with doctrinal maximalists or sectarians. These individuals require strict adherence to precise doctrinal positions for unity and fellowship. They treat every doctrine as if they're equal in weight and importance. They may consider all sins equally wicked. And as a result, they promote unnecessary division that undermines church unity in favor of uniformity. So instead of deeply held unity that derives from shared um, possession by Christ and of the gospel They just want everyone to look alike and sound alike. Now, not everyone agrees 
about what constitutes a necessary division. And this gets to the heart of the challenge of doctrinal division and everything else that we're going to talk about, even as we get into the conscience. We, we may say a doctrinal sectarian is somebody who makes unnecessary divisions. Well, I don't think you'll run into a doctrinal sectarian who says, I'm making divisions unnecessarily. You see what I mean? So um, we, we have to be cautious about the accusations we make against people because we might start to create a caricature of them as people who just hate being nice to other people or something like that. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, even in one of the books we're using for this class, Finding the Right Hills to Die on, Ortland suggests that doctrinal sectarians make think that doctrines are all of equal importance. I just don't think that's true. I, I grew up in the fundamentalist world, and I think I know independent fundamentalists better than a lot of people, and they don't say that. They say there are distinctions in the significance of doctrines. Still, I think they can be said to make a bigger deal of some doctrines than they need to. They might overestimate the significance of doctrines, and they may overly locate doctrinal unity in the cognitive realm rather than the effective and behavioral. Okay, so if you run into someone like that who does say all doctrines are equal, or, you know, if you don't look and think just like I do, then you, we can't have fellowship. It's probably best just to pray for that person and entrust them to the Lord and not try to change their minds. Um, God changes people's minds in his time. That's not our job. And by, like, trying to force a sectarian person to be less sectarian, we're probably just going to emphasize and produce more division than anything else. So instead of trying to say, yeah, just just leave that be. Um, if they come to our church, praise the Lord, and hopefully they'll stick around. You know, you, you hope that happens because um, we believe we can have fellowship with them, even if they don't say the same thing about us. This is, um, this is a brief anecdote, um, but there's, in my world, I, I was trying to build my resume a little bit by doing some adjunct teaching at uh, different places, and I contacted the dean of the seminary at the college and seminary that I, I grew up going to, and, and they were like, we would never let you teach at our school. And I'm like, well, that's sad because, like, you know, I think you guys are fine. Um, and then we invited one of their professors to come speak for our Bible conference, and the school said, this guy's not allowed to come here because you guys aren't fundamentalists. Well, it's hard to, like, pursue unity in that realm, but we should always look towards them with open arms, even if there's, like, a fence out there that says, keep out from their side, all right? Um, we can be in danger of becoming a different kind of sectarian, which is, um, if you don't allow as much flexibility as I do, then you're not welcome here either. So that, that's a challenge for us if we're looking to the right, is to be just as open as we are with people who fit our vibe a little bit more. Does this make sense? Ben? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people are people. We can get upset about anything, and um, I think we have to really work hard to love one another. That's what, that's what this class is hopefully going to help us do. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to suggest then that doctrinal sectarians um, probably are assigning greater significance to doctrine than it deserves, paired with an elevation of their interpretation of Scripture to the level of Scripture's own authority. 
Uh, so they're saying not only are these doctrines significant, but we have surety about our doctrine. We're so certain about this that we know it's as authoritative as the Scripture's own teaching. That's why it's important for us to work to separate our interpretation of Scripture from Scripture itself. We need to say we could be wrong here. We need the virtues of humility as we formulate our doctrines and as we interpret the Scriptures. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, I think Ortland's counsel on an inclination towards sectarianism is helpful. He says, when we notice the unhealthy symptoms of doctrinal sectarianism in our hearts, we need to return to our deepest level of emotional loyalty to Jesus himself. He is the one who died for us. He is the one to whom we will ultimately answer. And his business is what we are about in the first place. Jesus alone is worthy of our ultimate commitment and all other doctrines find their proper place in relation to him. As we return to Christ himself for our deepest placement and identity, he will help us hold our convictions with both confidence and grace. So in other words, we should care about the purity of the church, but we should also care about the unity of the church that's found in Christ himself. So we need to work hard to avoid making lesser matters central to our identity as Christians. The opposite error might be doctrinal minimalism. So if doctrinal maximalists or sectarians make too much of doctrine and assign individual doctrines too much weight, doctrinal minimalists make the opposite error of not assigning enough significance to doctrine. Um, Where doctrinal sectarians confuse unity with uniformity, doctrinal minimalists confuse pluriformity with unity. So if we can have this vague notion that we can all get along without agreeing on anything and call that unity, that's the kind of unity that's going to break down in short order. Um, I think that's why as you look in the larger world at churches that say, we don't care about doctrine anymore, just come and be happy and love Jesus, those are the denominations that die out. It's because there's not anything grounding their unity, and eventually they become nothing more than a nonprofit, right? They're doing the same thing any nonprofit could do, and there's not that deep cohesion of the church that comes through thinking rightly about God and Christ and the gospel. So we need to avoid doctrinal minimalism as well. Um, I think doctrinal minimalists, so where doctrinal sectarians need to be a little more humble in their interpretation of Scripture, doctrinal minimalists might need to be a little more confident in their interpretation of Scripture. So some doctrinal minimalists will say something like, unless you can gain 100% certainty of something, you should never affirm it or, or allow your life to be shaped by it. The problem with that is none of us can have 100% certainty about anything if you get into the epistemological conundrum that is knowledge, okay? We can have true and sure and certain beliefs, um, but it's really difficult to prove something 100%. Uh, There's like an interesting debate about whether or not we can prove that we all see the same color when we assign something a color. You know, like even something basic like that You can't be 100% certain that everyone who's looking at gray perceives gray in the same way. You see what I mean? Our knowledge, we're finite creatures. um, So we can't always, and maybe not really ever, have 100% certainty about something. But the ironic thing is that doctrinal minimalists will make this claim with 100% certainty as well. So there's a little bit of an irony in there. 
um, we, we need to avoid falling into the trap of saying that no one can truly know anything. That's bad epistemology. That's bad philosophy of knowledge, okay? Uh, we can truly know things even as we know them with humility and even as we have guiding structures that help us know things rightly. The way knowledge works isn't that we're blank slates and we can arrive at 100% certainty on our own. We stand on the shoulders of people who go before us. We build on the doctrines that are handed down to us, much in the same way that the Apostle Paul built on that which was handed over to him by the other apostles and by the Lord himself. Uh, This notion of tradition being handed on is a really good thing that we all tie into. Finally, on this note of sectarianism and minimalism, Christians and people are a contradiction in terms. In some areas, we're all sectarian, and in some areas, we're all more minimalist, and maybe not consistently so. Um, So we have to recognize that we can't just have two neat camps and say, um, I'm in one or the other. Probably on any given issue, you're in one or the other based on what your interests and your preferences and a hundred other influencing factors are. Uh, So this is the same thing when you try to say I'm conservative or less conservative or more conservative. That's true maybe on any given issue, but on any issue you can see someone to the right or to the left of you, and that doesn't mean that you're balanced or that you've struck the perfect middle, okay? We... Anyone who likes to be conservative is not going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, in the middle, you know, I'm perfectly balanced. People like that don't like to be perfectly balanced. Hyperliberals don't like to be perfectly balanced either. But for your normal, rational human being, we all like to think that we found the perfect balance. Well, just because you can identify someone on either side of you doesn't mean you're balanced. You may be way on one end or on the other. The reality for us is that we are not balanced in terms of our conservative view of doctrine because we believe that God actually speaks, that Jesus actually existed. So on that score, we're way to the, the right of center, right of center. Okay, so we have to recognize a lot of this is a matter of perspective when you're trying to place yourself here. Comments or questions up to that point? Okay, I'll keep moving then because we've got more to talk about. I want to talk about the matrix of doctrine and mission, okay? Um, Often I get emails from people who are going to come visit our church, and they ask me if we're a liberal or a conservative church. Um, Recently I got one email that just said, where are you on the gay question, and how many people go to your church? Well, people have questions like this. They want to, like, identify what kind of a church you are. And it's always hard for me to answer that question because I don't know if they're talking about American political parties or theological positions or what. Um, this, and there's no like standard definition of liberal or conservative. The, these are really hard things to define. Um, and, you know, I sometimes jokingly say that no self-respecting liberal would call us liberal and no sectarian conservative would call us conservative. Like, you can't arrive at a good answer on any of these things. Um, but I, I don't think that's the right way of framing things or even the right question to ask. Um, if the gospel central to our identity is our church, we'll always be vulnerable to charges of being both conservative and liberal. 
like Keller's idea here. He says, many people have a driving impulse to place every church somewhere on the ideological spectrum from liberal slash left-wing to conservative slash right-wing, but the gospel makes a church impossible to categorize in this way, for it brings both deep, powerful changes that convert people from their sin and deep, powerful social changes as well. So we resist easy classification as conservative or liberal. I want to suggest that if the gospel really is central to our church identity, then number one, we will always be bringing people into our membership who have not been discipled beyond the very basics of the gospel. We'll have new Christians coming to our church, and they won't be able to clearly articulate a biblical view on any number of doctrines. And it's not necessary for them to do so in order to be admitted to the kingdom of God, nor is it necessary for them to do so to be admitted to our church membership. If we are actively sharing the gospel and people are coming to faith, we should not unduly delay their baptism in addition to our membership if they have received the gospel of Christ. Think often churches can get in a spot where they don't want anyone to join who can't check all of the boxes, and then they wonder why this new convert leaves the faith within a year or so later. Well, it's because they were never folded into the life of the church, at least in part. So if we're a missional, evangelizing kind of church, we'll always be adding people to our assembly who don't have any of the categories to work with that might show up in our statement of faith. And that's okay. That's, a, that's something for us to deal with as we pursue doctrinal discipleship, okay? Um, that, that is, on some level, a little bit scary, you might say, because we're adding people to the church who don't agree with us, and they get to vote about certain things. Well, that's why we have to work hard to establish um, a statement of faith. And I think as we work on ours, there's probably good reason to to develop a basics of belief that's required for membership and a more in-depth and nuanced statement of faith that would be required for someone to be an elder here. Uh, There is good reason to have division between those two levels of statement of faith because you need more theological compatibility for the leadership of a church than you do for someone to join our membership, particularly for new believers. Does, Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Two, we will always welcome diverse doctrinal positions that can be held together by mutual gospel belief. So many doctrinal positions do not evidence themselves in the practices of the church, and for that reason, they can be welcomed if they are coherent in the gospel. So a lot of distinct ways of talking about any number of positions, have nothing to do in the outworking of the life of the church, so that diversity can be held without any division at all. There are also some low-ranging doctrines that you have to just take a position and put it into practice. So you have to make a decision about what your church is going to do in terms of church structure and government and polity. Well, as long as someone's willing to operate within that, they don't have to agree with you, but they do have to say, yep, I'm joining a church that has elder-led congregationalism that's trying to walk this fine line, even if they're like, I, I wouldn't really care if our church was elder rule or pure congregational polity or, or something else. Well, some doctrines have to take shape and you have to pick something, and people can disagree, but your church has to function according to one of them. As long as those disagreements can be held together by common belief in the gospel and common cooperation in the mission of the church, diversity in opinion and belief is really possible. 
Third, if the Gospel Central will always be concerned about issues that define conservative and liberal churches. We will care about issues that are commonly attributed to conservative churches, like preaching that people are sinners in need of a savior, but we'll also be concerned about issues that might commonly be attributed to liberal churches, like making our community and society a better place to live. Um, I like the way that Keller talks about this. Rather than emphasizing mainly evangelism, as conservative churches do, or mainly social justice, as liberal churches do, we intentionally set out to give a very high emphasis to both, employing a holistic approach that connects the people in our church to the city through both evangelistic proclamation and ministries of justice and mercy. I think he's striking the right idea here. We need to care both about evangelism and bettering Uh, our society, about doing good deeds without requiring people also to pray a prayer of salvation connected to it. Uh, That's, you know, that's hard to do uh, because many of us are inclined towards one and the other or the other. Some of us really love telling people about Jesus for the very first time explicitly, telling them that they're a sinner and that they need salvation. Others of us just really like doing nice things for people, running, um, you know, Panera Bread out to people and every, you know, everything else. We, we have different bents. And instead of saying that's a division, we should bring these two things together and say there's two strengths that compensate for each other's weaknesses and result in a really healthy way of doing church together. So if we're thinking that way, at times someone might say you're liberal because you care too much about just doing good things. Others might say you're closed-mindedly sectarian because you're also telling their people they're sinners in need of salvation. If the gospel is central, and if the gospel does concern both of these ministry fronts, and I think it does, then we can't buy into this idea that you have to identify as conservative or, or liberal. These categories just are not really that helpful. Let me pause there for any uh, questions before I move on to um, taxonomies of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into this in just a few weeks in James, right? Where he sets up this situation where there's a needy person and you say, hey, I feel bad for you. I hope you, your needs get met and you don't do anything. And then he goes on to say, faith without works is dead. He's not talking about works of the law, like obeying the requirements of Torah. He's talking about action connected to real living faith. So we'll talk about this as a church in in a couple weeks. Okay, so we might come out of this and say, all right, we framed the issue. We don't want to be doctrinally sectarian or minimalist. We want to care both about um, evangelism and social needs. Well, how do we move forward in deciding which doctrines are worthy of dividing over? Well, theologians have wrestled with this for a long time, going all the way back to the Apostle Paul. So we're in good company here. And the Apostle Paul gave us a taxonomy. When we talk about taxonomies, it's just a way of categorizing things, okay? So he, in 1 Corinthians 15, talked about things that are of first importance. And throughout his letter, he talks about other things that are important, but not most important. So he talks about his call to preach the gospel. He's leaving baptism to other people. Um, when he's talking with the Corinthians here, he's emphasizing that Jesus' death for our sin, his resurrection, and our future resurrection, these are things that are a matter of first importance. There are things that are of secondary importance, or even tertiary, or I don't know what the right term would be for fourth 
I don't, what would fourth in the tertiary, secondary? Quadrary. I love it. We'll add that. Um, the point is that the Apostle Paul distinguished between things that were of most importance and things that were not of most importance. Well, Christians picked up on that, and uh, they, they came up early on with a two-tier taxonomy for Christian doctrine with essentials in one category and non-essentials in the other. The essentials are those things that are necessary for salvation and that are stated explicitly in Scripture, that are recognized in the Christian creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and their beliefs that have reached consensus among Christians to where no thinking Christian is denying it. So there are some things that are out of bounds, like Marcion's declaration that we can get rid of the Old Testament. Uh, They're saying, nope, that doesn't fit here. Uh, There are things that you need to at least not deny, even if you don't have the vocabulary to explicitly affirm. So when it talks about the generation of the Son and the Spirit within the um, ontology of the Trinity— You don't necessarily have to have the right vocabulary to know how to talk about that, but you can't deny that there's a trinity, that God is one, that he's three persons in one. So even in in the essentials, there's room to say not everyone's an expert here. Uh, So just don't deny certain things that the church has always affirmed. Um, So that's where we get into disagreements maybe with oneness Pentecostals or others who formulate a non-standard articulation of Trinitarian doctrine. Under the non-essential categories have the opposite, beliefs not necessary for salvation, including beliefs not explicitly stated in Scripture, beliefs not shared by all Christian traditions, beliefs that have not reached consensus, and then finally, beliefs not necessarily edifying for all. Uh, What they meant by that, I'm not quite sure, but I think they're trying to say beliefs that uh, just are not going to find resolution, um, that lead to endless debate, these kind of things that Paul talks about in Timothy and the letters uh, there to Titus. So this is a two-tier taxonomy. I think that this is like a really good starting point um, because it just gives us a neat division. Are you a Christian or not? If so, hooray. Um, in the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, uh, I forget what it says, flexibility or something like that, and then in all things, love. Okay, so, so that two-tier taxonomy is really, really helpful. I think it's particularly helpful because uh, when you run into your new neighbor and you get to know them, uh, you, you want to know, do I need to call this person to faith and repentance? Well, if they're affirming the things and the essentials, you don't need to try to convince them you're not a Christian. Uh, they're a Christian even if they belong to a different denomination than you. If they're affirming these essential things, rejoice with them in the Lord, um, even if they look at denomination or baptism or something like that differently than you do. Keeps everything simple. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily help for everything in terms of how we're going to structure our church or, um, you know, for fellowship within a particular local assembly. So this guy, R. Albert Moeller Jr., who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, came up with this three-tier taxonomy, drawing on the analogy of medical triage. So his mom was a triage nurse, and he is building on that experience of when you go to the emergency room, they're going to sort the most urgent and important cases to get treatment first in the things of lesser importance, 
they're not going to worry about them as much. So if you have a gunshot wound, you're going to be able to cut in line in front of the person who has a broken nose. That's the idea of triage. You care about the most important things the most. The other things are not insignificant. You are in the emergency room, after all. Um, But they probably don't need to divide us. So he, he has three tiers here. Uh, he has a first, second, and third level. The first level are those issues that are most central and essential to the Christian faith, like the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Christ, justification by faith alone, the authority of Scripture. And if you disagree on these issues, he suggests that um, you're denying nothing less than Christianity itself. On the second level, he says that these are important to Christian fellowship, but not central or essential to the faith. So they might... Um, disagreements here might uh, necessitate denominational distinctions or local church distinctions, but they shouldn't really keep you from calling each other Christians. So things like the meaning and mode of baptism, women serving as pastors, and other important issues. Then he comes to third-level issues, and those are disagreements that don't influence Christian fellowship, or at least they shouldn't, and they're not essential to the faith. So the timetable and sequence of the end times— This is not something that should be dividing Christians. There should be no influence on fellowship or a sense of compromise over over these things. We should just agree to disagree, maybe. Now, I want to point out several weaknesses to this taxonomy and really to all forms of theological triage. So I'm using Moeller's thing as an example, but it's not a weakness in him or something. It's just a weakness in triage. Um, his method of triage fails to clarify that whole doctrines cannot be holistically located in one category. So you can't just put eschatology in the third tier because if you deny that Jesus is going to return and make all things right, you're denying an essential aspect of the gospel. So you can't just put a full doctrine in any one of these categories in the same way that you can't probably put something that you would say is a first-level issue totally in that first-level category. So when we start talking about doctrines of self, you can't just put soteriology as a first-level category and say that, well, I'm a Calvinist and that person is an Arminian and they disagree with me on soteriology, so they got to go. They're not Christians. You see what I mean? This is a weakness of or at least a way that taxonomies could be wrongly used. Doctrinal categorization is not a mathematical formula where you can just crunch the numbers with one category of systematic theology and determine its urgency and importance with precision. That just can't happen. Uh, Second, his concept of theological triage requires that doctrines be identified and placed within one of these categories, but he doesn't tell you how to go about putting them in those categories. So the independent fundamental Baptist might say, if you don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture in a literal 1,000-year reign, um, you're denying a second or first-order doctrine. Well, there's nothing to help people determine where to place these categories except for intuition. And I think that's a problem. Uh, How do we know where to categorize these things? We've got to work through that, and we will uh, next week. Third, related to this weakness, um, Moeller doesn't provide distinct criteria for what counts as essential to the Christian faith. He starts with talking about the gospel and things essential to the faith, but then he starts building out on that anything that could possibly weaken 
um, the gospel. And eventually you can pack anything that you want into this first level issue because you can, on a long winding road, say, if you deny a pre-tribulational rapture, eventually you're going to deny the gospel itself and you can articulate all the steps that it would take to get you there. But we have to guard against importing everything that we care about into what we call the gospel. The gospel touches on everything, but not everything is the gospel. Okay, we, we have to guard against that, especially following the last decade where everybody was becoming gospel-centered and everything was the gospel. We have to watch out against saying that um, whatever our favorite issue is, is a gospel issue. The gospel touches or influences it, but it's not the gospel. Um, I think a couple... Uh, okay, so... I think a couple issues here then that you'd also have to consider as a weakness is that he doesn't provide latitude for the complexity of doctrinal articulation um, or the contextualized outworking of doctrine in the life of the church. We'll pick up here next week, but the points that I'm trying to make are sometimes people think they disagree when they don't just because they use different terminology. Uh, Sometimes people need to um, just deal with the situation they're in. So you can't always have everything in the way that you'd want it to be. So if you're a missionary church planter in China and you encounter a church where all of the men are in prison or something, so women have been fulfilling the pastoral roles, probably your first action shouldn't be tell those women they're being unfaithful and get the only guy who happens to maybe not even be a Christian appointed as an elder. You know, so we have to deal with the broken situations that we're in, but then also we have to be able to deal with the fact that eventually, over time, we come to recognize faithful Christians are always going to agree on this issue, so we shouldn't keep dividing over it. We've come to that point with eschatology. Um, you know, there was a time when Biola was accused of being unfaithful because they built a building with bricks, and it showed that they no longer believed Christ would return and you know, uh, so they're investing too heavily in the institution on this earth. Well, we've now gotten to a place where we're not dividing over doctrines like that, and maybe there are other doctrines where we've got to get to that point too. So we'll pick up here next week. I'll stick around here if you'd like to chat, but thanks for making it through week two.